0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam, And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have quite a show, um, lots to talk about today, very international. You know, one of the things that we haven't been able to really check in on have been the uh, Olympics, the delayed Olympics in Japan, obviously, and nothing escapes the reach of the hazbaristas and, uh, you know, the influence of the apartheid state of Israel. And you've done a really incredible interview. And we're going to hear later from, uh, May Shinaga Nobu, who is a journalist and is going to be speaking about her experience with the Tokyo Olympics, what's going on, holding events, the COVID-19 issue. And, uh, I didn't even know this. So I'm, I'm be very interested to hear what, what comes up with that, the decision to, um, commemorate the 1972 Munich Olympics. So, uh there's a lot to talk about. After that, you know, there's a, actually quite a bit going on still. We there were some uh judokas who uh judo athletes from Algeria and uh Sudan who decided to boycott uh the Israeli Olympians. We were going to do a follow-up with Ben and Jerry's obviously. They published a really interesting op-ed in the New York Times. We'll talk about how even Israeli academics are supporting the jerry boycott. And finally, Jamal, I'm going to really be interested in your ideas about this. Since you've been to Tunisia after the first Arab Spring, are we headed for another revolution in Tunisia? So lots to talk about today.
1: That's right, Jess. Uh, we're going to start uh, with Mei Shigonobu. Uh, I've been to Japan. So I don't claim to be an expert <laughs> on Japanese politics. You and I, we don't claim to be experts and that's why we have the right expert for you to this, this this topic let's watch and listen to May In February a survey found that 80% of Japanese people do not want Tokyo games to go ahead On Tuesday Japan's prime minister said there were no plans to shut down the ongoing Olympic games after a record number of new COVID-19 cases were recorded in the country's capital. Joining us to discuss this and more, May Shigonobu. May is a Palestinian-Japanese journalist. She also has a doctorate in media studies from Doshisha University in Kyoto, Japan, doing research on the development of Arabic media. Welcome to Arab Talk, May.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
1: So in late June in an, an unusual public statement Japanese Emperor Naruhito disclosed his deep concerns about the coronavirus spread during the Tokyo uh, Olympics yet despite the rise of covid cases it looks like the government and its prime minister want this to go on why is this a political maneuver to avoid a major economic disaster
2: I think there are a few things here. One of them is this is a way for Japan to show the world or try to show the world that it is over the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Like uh, like the Olympics it held in 1964, which was a sign that Japan has overcome the war and the disaster of the war. This time it was kind of... Um, A signal to the world that Japan is now, you know, fully recovered and, you know, welcoming tourists and and also it was like a a way to boost the economy, the Japanese economy, even though eventually this this whole thing is a complete uh, loss for the government. Because it doesn't have all the revenue, uh, you know, the the expected revenue that's going to have from tourism and from the legacy effect, which is, you know, in the 10 coming 10 years from the people who come to Tokyo for this Olympics will start to tell others to join and go and visit Tokyo. So this is always expected from the Olympics legacy effect so tokyo has lost both the tour the actual tourists for the olympics the sales of the goods for the olympics the hotels the all the reservations plus all the ticket sales and the possible you know um uh, tourists that were supposed to come in the coming 10 years because of this olympics so it's it's a way of it was a way of marketing for japan especially that we have a very the extreme right-wing uh, government right now in Japan, which is very much concerned about, you know, making this Japan is a great image uh, in the global um, community.
1: So yeah, that's that's actually I didn't know that that's kind of the the right government. It's it's more of a nationalistic government than mm-hmm. the new the usual ones. And then there is something interesting that I don't know if it was uh, reported. Uh, uh, on uh, in Japanese media but I know in in the Middle East media and, and you're very well aware of that you know historically the Japanese public and government uh, have supported the struggle of the Palestinian people yet uh, this was in 49 years uh, that's that the opening of the Olympics seems to be politicized you know focusing for example on the 1972 Munich Olympic, uh, Olympics when uh, Israeli uh, Olympic team members were killed by Palestinian gunmen at a time when Palestinian children keep getting slaughtered by Israeli occupation soldiers and settlers. What's up with Japan allowing this to happen, and were there any motives behind it?
2: Yes, there is a bit of a story behind all this. Again, I mentioned that we have a very right-wing nationalistic government right now in Japan, but on top of this, you know, uh, you know, since uh, we had the uh, oil embargo in the 70s, uh, Japan had actually changed its, its way. It was completely with the you know American foreign policy supporting Israel up until then. But after the the oil embargo, uh, Japan had been hit very hard economically because it relies completely for imports of the oil and, uh, you know, petroleum from the Middle East. So when the oil uh, was, you know, it, this was an Arab way of the OPEC, or, or the OAPEC, if you want, uh, way of trying to, you know, punish all these countries that were supporting Israel when uh, the the Six-Day War happened in seventy three. So... When we have this, uh, Japan here shifted from being completely pro-US foreign policy uh, in supporting Israel in the Middle East, Uh, it shifted towards having better relations with the Arab world. However, this time, it's been a while since uh, Japan was trying to maintain this quote unquote neutral uh, relation with the Arab world as well as relations with Israel. But now we have in the government, the vice uh, minister of defense is someone who is quite um, fond of Israel. He's visited Israel several times. Um, he is someone, for example, when you had the, the recent Gaza massacre, you know, uh, ba- Palestinians were being massacred. At this time, what he tweeted was, "Was uh, our heart is with Israel. Uh, wow. You know, Yes. And in another another interview, he spoke that the the best uh, the most uh, fear for Japan right now for Japan's defense uh, the biggest fear for Japan right now is fake news uh, Hamas Hezbollah and the Red Army. So if you it sounds hear, like
1: Donald Trump. <laughs>
2: Yes, and it sounds like, like, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah, where did that come from? For Japan, I mean, you know, it's not like, so he is like completely immersed in the Israeli defensive uh, mindset. So this guy is also, uh, he's, even though he's an official, he's a, a vice minister of defense, uh, when I don't know if you've heard, uh, there was a scandal in the team, the IOC, uh, the, no, the Japan Olympic team, and, um, and there was a, a certain person, uh, Mr. Kobayashi, uh, who turned out to be uh, someone who had made jokes about um, in a comedy skit in 1998. This is way back in
1: 1998. Oh yes, I and 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 he had to quit, resign, yes, yeah. Yes.
2: He made a joke, previously it seems he had made a joke about the Holocaust. Now, Mm -hmm. I think most people didn't know about this, or maybe people didn't remember or anything, but someone uh, had come come out with this information, and uh, this uh, Vice Defense Minister Nakayama, Mr. Nakayama, the first thing he did was not going to the Japanese government to complain about this positioning and this person who might be, you know, like uh, a problem for relations between Japan and, uh, and Israel. He went straight to um, uh, the the Simon Wiesent, Wiesent, uh, Wiesent Center,
1: Center
2: Center to tell them that we have this, a certain person who is the responsible person for the opening ceremony, the director of the opening ceremony, he had had he has had a, a history of talking about the Holocaust in a derogative way. Uh, so you know you would expect to to have this person first complain to the Japanese government, but mm-hmm. not to the center, you know. So this is the level of this person's attachment to Israel and the Israeli government. So from here, you have uh, this what you just mentioned in the beginning, the in the beginning, in the opening ceremony, you had uh, a memorial for the Israeli athletes that were killed uh, 79 years ago. And this is the first Olympics where they have this minute of silence uh, for these
1: 49 uh, 49 years ago.
2: Yes, 49 years ago. Yes. So Uh, It was in 1972, I think, the Olympics of Mm -hmm. 1972 in Munich. So, okay, there is no problem in, you know, commemorating uh, any victim of any, uh, if they're athletes and, you know, uh, they want to commemorate. But this was prepared. I mean, like you had families of some of the family members attending the opening ceremony itself. a completely prepared uh, uh, kind of show of solidarity with Israel. And I think this is also a part of uh, this right-wing kind of collaboration or, uh, you know, uh, showing uh, alliance with Israel in a way.
1: So this was a way to basically, because of what this vice minister has done many, many, many years ago, a way to kind of push Japan into that uh, commemoration? Because, I mean, I find it very strange, like I said, at a time when the world is shunning Israel, Israel has been declared an apartheid state by the human, right, by human Rights Watch, by its own human rights organization, Beth uh, Salem, also declared it uh, an apartheid state. Today, there is a big ad in the Haaretz newspaper, or yesterday was yes. it, a big ad in the Haaretz newspaper, 100 uh, politicians and academics, etc., uh, saying, uh, like about the, the story of Ben and Jerry's, we've been sp- talking about this, that uh, they actually... Thank Ben and Jerry's uh, for uh, boycotting Israeli settlements. That Japan digs something 49 years old. I mean, frankly, I mean, if anyone who needs to be commemorated these days, the millions who have died because of COVID. I mean, that's 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 a legitimate not to kind of rehash something in the past, and then at a time when Israel is murdering. Uh, Palestinians that's why I'm bringing this up you know it's it just the timing and, and the and the venue being in Japan seemed very very uh, abnormal for such an event to take place
2: uh, indeed, I agree. If there are people we need to commemorate, and I have no problem with commemorating people's loss and everything, but, you know, there are a lot of people we could commemorate at this kind of event, as you mentioned, COVID uh, victims, the medical staff who, you know, who sacrificed their lives all this, this past year and a half for this uh, fighting this pandemic. You have, you know, you have Hiroshima's victims. You have all sorts of victims that you could, you know, remember in this kind of event in uh, Japan.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I mean, I mean, what's more important than this for, for, for the country? I just want to add on this topic a couple of things because you may you may not know, but the Simon Wisdenfall Center, and I've written about this many, many years ago, they are behind... Uh, the destruction of uh, Palestinian cemeteries in Jerusalem. It's, it, it's a very his, historical cemetery called Mamilla, And that's where my great-grandparents are, are, are buried in the Mamilla Cemetery. And they build on it a, a museum. They call it a Museum of Remembrance. I've written about uh-huh. this many years ago, and they've complained at the time I was writing for the Huffington Post. And the Huffington Post editor, editorial team contacted me, and I said, no, that's what they're doing. Mm. They're removing, I mean, if this was done anywhere else to any, you know, Jews or any, anywhere else to remove ancestors and stack them up in boxes just to build a museum, uh, the world would be up in arms. So they're, you know, I mean, they should look at, at their history of what they have been doing in, in, in destroying Palestinian, you know, history and cemeteries in, in Jerusalem.
2: Indeed, I agree. You know, like um, uh, it's like giving a present to Israel at a time when the world is kind of starting to open its eyes about Israel's apartheid uh, system, its uh, discrimination, its occupation, its massacres of Palestinians. So it's a time to try and you know pressure Israel to come uh, to you know, to its senses, not a time to, you know, give presence to Israel left, right, and center with all these behaviors, you know, even before the Olympics. But one thing I, that might come to mind, in my opinion, this could also be a kind of apology for having this, uh, you know, Olympic committee member uh, that would uh, that was, you know, known to have previously Joked about the Holocaust, so maybe it's a way of trying trying to correct that. So they're doing so, this. So
1: they threw the Palestinians under the bus. Yes, right?
2: yes, could be. I'm. I can't be sure about this. I'm. I can't. I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. If this was all planned before knowing this this fact, or it was planned after you know this fact had come out uh, to to the public. But you know, there has been a history of this. As I mentioned earlier, this, um, you know, strong ties with Israel for this government. And actually from uh, 2014, Japan has strengthened its ties with Israel quite, uh, quite uh, strongly this time.
1: So far, there have been a couple of boycotts that I know of uh, at the Olympics of Israeli athletes. Yes. Algerian uh, judoka Yes. Fathi Nourin and his coach Ammar, uh, Ammar uh, Ben-Khalaf had their Olympic accreditation withdrawn on Saturday mm-hmm. and, and they were sent home, or, or, or uh, I think they were sent home, after refusing to fight an Israeli athlete. Mm-hmm. A second uh, judoka. Uh, scheduled uh, to face Israel, uh, an Israeli athlete has dropped out of the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, Sudan's Mohammed Abdel Rasul, yes. who weighed in but did not show up uh, for the match. How's this been covered in Japan and in the Arab world? In the Arab world, I've seen it. Yes, both both
2: uh, uh, news. I've seen it, but. Uh, the, of course, the Tunisian, uh, the Algerian athletes' news uh, was strong, uh, bigger because it was the first athlete boycotting on the spot the, the the his fight. And you know, this could have been his fame, but it, he chose, you know, to sacrifice this position for you know for his uh, for his uh, you know what he believes in. But uh, in the Japanese media, it hasn't really. I mean, mean, maybe in the local media it might have been mentioned, of course, when they're giving daily uh, uh, coverage about judo and all this, but it's not a big news. Another thing that I noticed actually just yesterday was that there is another news that hasn't been even in the English media. It's been in the Arabic media, but it hasn't been in the English media, and only the BDS of Japan has brought it up, which is that one of the athletes uh, in the Palestinian team uh, has uh, also, he's, a Jeru- he's born in Jerusalem, but mm. when he was introduced in the opening ceremony, he was introduced as an Israeli born in, he's born in East Jerusalem, but he, he was introduced as uh, born in Israel. So, so, uh, uh, the Palestinian Olympic Committee's uh, head, Jibril Rajoub, had complained about this, and he even threatened that the the Palestinian team will withdraw from the Olympics if they do not correct it. And immediately, the IOC did apologize for this uh, mistake. But according to what the Japanese BDS says, it's not corrected still on the website. So it was a it was a lip service as you know as an apology, but it has not been changed on the website or the system as yet. I don't know. Maybe after we talk, this has changed. But as of yet, this was the situation.
1: Yeah, this is very important. Uh, thank you actually for bringing this up. And I noticed also, some media networks are having a problem. Uh, especially getting their feed when the Palestinian team, when every country had the, you know, at least they introduced them as Palestine. You know, yes. that's, I, I give them credit. They didn't say uh, West Bank, Palestinian territories. Is but they had a problem with the map. Yes. So <laughs> they had this weird rectangular whatever map, which didn't even uh, represent the west Bank didn't represent gaza people didn't know if they only put gaza didn't represent historic Palestine just like a sliver of of, of uh, it's like it's inaccurate and 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 people raised some complaints but now nobody's talking about it yeah
2: that was i think was it uh F- 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 NBC was it? Or which uh, I forgot which channel it was. Well, M- NBC,
1: M- NBC in the US is the main network that's bringing. But that's what I saw. it. You're absolutely right. So I don't yes. know if it, it happened on other networks.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, actually, that's uh, that's also shameful. I think, you know, this is the the least where you have to do your homework and uh, know how to prepare for how to introduce the teams, unless if it is intentional. Like I'm, I'm sometimes doubting what the, the IOC. The way it introduced this Palestinian athlete uh, is, I might think it's not maybe a pure mistake. You know, it's another service to Israel by mentioning that Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, is part of Israel.
1: Another uh, bit of news, which is a happy news, Tunisian swimmer Ahmed Ayyub Hafnawi yes. uh, was uh, the stunning I would yes. say stunning winner of the 400 meter freestyle at the Tokyo Games uh, on Sunday, beating a field of faster and, and, and more experienced and older uh, swimmers. How was this? This received in Tunisia because I know you monitor the Arab world, mm-hmm. and did it also stun the Japanese uh, public?
2: It did actually. Even in Japan, it was surprised because he was ranked in the third 300s or something in the world ranks. So, a person who was completely unexpected to win uh, won the gold medal. So, this is why it was also in Japan quite a a stunning result. And it was also covered, of course, in the Arab media and also the social media. It was all over the place. Uh, Happy news for everyone, of course. Uh, But also the Western, like Guardian, also. even titled it as a shocking uh, gold uh, gold medal for the tunisian swimmer
1: may Shigonobu, thank you for coming on arab talk
2: thank you very much for having me
0: well that's the voice and the sound of may shinagubu i'm i know i've mispronounced her name i'm so sorry may a really kind of extremely in-depth Very comprehensive analysis, Jamal, that we're probably not hearing a whole lot about, even in the mainstream media, which is covering the Olympics. Um, What's interesting to me about Japan, you know, Japan has been a big player in Palestine, you know, in just in terms of their commitment to rebuilding and supporting and, and, and just politically over the years. So her analysis on the Munich Olympics commemoration was very interesting.
1: Absolutely, Jess. And uh, of course, she lays it all out there as far as the history of uh, Japan and Palestine, because it has changed several times how governments uh, pre-70s, I would say, pre the oil embargo, uh, basically and blindly followed the policies of the United States vis-a-vis Palestine and and Israel, and then this has changed then when they realized that they had to develop relations uh, with the Arabs and and Palestinians. But now what she's saying is that there is a new uh, uh, far-right-wing government uh, that has shifted its policies uh, in support of Israel and 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 uh, expanding their bilateral relationship right which by the way ended up in throwing palestinians under under the bus that's what happened during these olympics and this is the issue and and many people don't talk about this yes is the issue that here you have the olympics right happening they're happening in in what we can definitely say very very unusual times right Millions of people across the globe have died because of uh, COVID, and uh, and it's been 49 years since the 72 uh, Munich Olympics. In they shift the attention to the uh, commemorating the athletes uh, that were killed in 1972, without an explanation, by the way, because prior countries, previous countries, and and uh, and the Olympic committees refused to do that. They didn't want to. Mingle politics exactly. with a happy exactly. opening. Exactly. However, this has a background which I didn't know. I had to read about it, and then of course May had to explain it to us. And this goes because um, there was an MC who was going to be talking about the Olympics. A Japanese MC uh, who who is also a comedian. He uh, made fun uh, about uh, the Holocaust twenty some years ago. Right. And and then a vice minister of the Japan uh, of this government in Japan reported him to the Simon Wiesenthal, like didn't report him actually to the Japanese government. Right, right. They reported him to Simon Wiesenthal, and so the Simon Wiesenthal put the pressure uh, in addition to Israel and, uh, and probably the United States put the pressure on the Japanese government to shame them first. The guy was forced to resign, which he resigned. Okay, but then somehow the commemoration got inserted in the opening ceremony, which usually is seen by millions and millions exactly. at the time of people, at the time when we've been talking on the show. Israel has been massacring Palestinian children, ethnically cleansing entire families from Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, etc., And the world is shunning Israel because of its apartheid, status starting from with the uh, you know human rights watch and and so on well that's
0: exactly right jamal i was that's why you know this is yet another example of um uh, and and we're going to talk about this later in the show too the level of anxiety and distress that the apartheid regime of israel is experiencing right now i mean we talked about this last week in terms of how they were to use your term which i think is great they melted Uh, with rage at the Ben and Jerry's uh, boycott of uh, occupied Palestine. This thing with the Olympics is especially painful, I think, for especially most of us, and especially for Japanese uh, living in Japan, because they're commemorating something that happened in 1972, introducing politics, when in fact, So many Japanese are dying right now from the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, from the Delta variant. I mean, what you're not hearing about in the opening ceremony is the health crisis that's occurring in Japan right now, really a catastrophic one, Jamal, that, um, you know, it's got one of the lowest vaccination rates uh, in the world right now, and the, the Delta variant in Japan is on on track to really cause and wreak havoc on the Japanese community, but none of that is discussed, uh, articulated, and uh, but yet we have to talk about the munich uh, uh, the munich seventy two Olympics. So uh, I think it's more of a reflection of the desperation of the apartheid regime right now because, as you say, they're getting confronted on all fronts in terms of their apartheid practices, their ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, the <clears throat> maybe to make the transition uh now really quickly, I'm, uh, we'll talk about Ben and Jerry and in, in in their uh in their op-ed in the New York Times, but you know, uh, what about the Algerian and the Sudanese uh judo uh, judokas, judo uh players who uh boycotted Israel? I didn't see any big media description
1: of that. Um that's kind of a big deal. It is a big deal, but I want to just uh, go back to something that May said, and um, uh, one is also uh, the Japanese themselves. You know, because you, you mentioned COVID, they have demonstrated, including the Emperor. Right. They're against. They were against holding the uh, Olympics in That's Tokyo. That's right. Then the other thing is we've mentioned COVID, which would be justifiable to kind of commemorate the lives lost uh, during the past year. Uh, And so, but also, you know, Japan, you know, I mean, suffered probably one of the biggest catastrophes, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Exactly. That was not discussed. So not to discuss, you know, COVID, the death from COVID, the death from... The bombing of of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki, and then kind of bypass that and go to something that happened forty nine years ago. That other committees, you know, you can see the politics at play in this. But you're you you're, you're correct as far as the what what's happening. There have been statements, and and a second uh, a judoko has pulled out of the Olympics uh, competition, and uh, uh, because he was uh, matched to an Israeli. Uh, uh, athlete uh, tohar betbul the name of the Israeli athlete and uh, he he's the second one to pull out of uh, from the Olympics before him uh, last week Abduldur uh from Algeria refused uh, to basically uh, participate in this and then uh, he and his coach uh, uh, were sent home they, they withdrew and they were sent home. The interesting thing about the Sudan thing, Jess, yeah. which I find like Algeria, I know that Algerian positions, you and I talk about that, and every single Palestinian knows that. Historically, they are not 100% behind the Palestinians. Not They're at 200% all. behind the, the Palestinians, right? You see that in all their games, soccer. Right. And because there are a lot of similarities, right. Algeria suffered under... French colon- settler colonialism for 200 years, almost 200 years, and they understand what Palestinians are going exactly. through. So they they are unequivocally supportive of the Palestinian cause. But Sudan, in January, signed into the so-called Abraham Accords, you know, the invention of your friend Donald Trump and uh, Jared Kushner. Right. Uh that's you know, right. basically paving the way for for that country to normalize ties with Israel. Then then later that month, Sudan said that it was disappointed. We didn't hear that much about the news. Not only that, that's the government, but that's the kind of, they're disappointed of the outcome of the normalization agreement. And the agreement itself was widely protested in Sudan. So the athlete, the judako uh, who withdrew, is just like really, I guess, Following the steps of of the public and uh, the sentiment of the public by refusing to normalize. That's right. Uh, you know, but relations with Israel. Exactly, Jamal. That's exactly right. But let's keep in mind the the signing of the
0: Abraham Accords with the new leadership in Sudan. Uh, you know, just to remind our our viewers and our listeners, what what was behind that? Sudan was on the terrorist watch list, had economic sanctions against it, and basically what Trump. Kushner and the American influence did said if you want any kind of economic stability in your country after we supported the revolution that happened and and the you know bringing into power of the new government you're going to have to sign these Abraham accords. The Abraham accords ended up being a disaster for the for the Sudanese uh community for the for the general population. It did nothing for them except you know normalize, you know, so-called relations. And you're exactly right, Jamal. Every Sudanese individual I've ever spoken to, and I've been to Sudan, you know, um, I could tell you the average Sudanese in the street will tell you unequivocally that the Abraham Accords is a joke and they don't support it. So if you want to look at where Sudan really is, look at this Judoka who pulled out of the Olympics, which arguably could was probably one of the most important things this athlete uh, could have done in their career. So uh, let's not kid ourselves about the Abraham Accords. And by the way, the other signers of the Abraham Accords, Jamal, have been equally lukewarm since Donald Trump and Jared Kushner have left the scene. So I'm ready
1: to say that the Abraham Accords are dead. I don't know how you feel about that. but Well, I mean, they're dead because the way they were presented – and now how they shifted they were presented including uh, statements by the uh, UAE uh, government saying they're doing it they're doing it as a favor to the palestinians because they're going <laughs> right. to stop the settlement movement <laughs> Etc. And so right. I mean, we know what's going on as we right. are speaking. Ethnic cleansing right. continues in Palestine. So that's a slap in their face because if that's how they presented it, I don't care about the economical relations or this uh, uh, petrodollar tourism that they want to have between Israel and the UAE. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be about just basically tourism and and the economy, but really right. nothing nothing else. And and we know. Actually, that helped in the uh, or accelerated the spread of Corona to both countries. That's right. By trying to do by trying to do that, and again, and not we can talk about that in details next time. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco eighty nine point five FM. So Jabal, uh, we back. should
0: yeah we should talk about uh, Ben and Jerry right because they wrote they we spoke about this last week. They were attacked viciously by the uh, Hasbaristas, you know, they were called uh, Terrace ice cream. Uh, They're being boycotted by Israelis because Ben and Jerry decided, their corporate, uh, uh, you know, company decided to boycott, uh, basically, you know, Israeli colonial settlements in occupied Palestine. Firestorm erupts, Jamal. Ben and Jerry are viciously attacked, and they write a very, I would say, nuanced you know, uh op-ed, opinion piece in the New York Times, where they say, and I'll just summarize it briefly before we talk, we're proud Jewish Americans. They actually said they support, you know, the state of Israel. Pretty strong statement. But what they said is that our commitment to human rights and values transcends everything. And basically the illegal, you know, apartheid occupation of Palestine can no longer be tolerated. So I would say it was probably, uh, you know, not as strong as maybe you and I would have liked, but they came out swinging against all the haters.
1: That's right. And I like the title uh, of the opinion piece, We're Ben and Jerry, Men of Ice Cream. Men of Principle. Right. I, I actually enjoyed uh, the title. Right. I think it's a very good right. title. Which, by the way, we will put, uh, we will post that editorial, uh, you know, on uh, on the screen and also on uh, on the website for those who have not read it. Also, you, you you're correct. Uh, they, they, uh, they said, you know, we're not anti-Israel, we're not anti-Semitic, because they've been labeled as anti-Semitic, right. se- Semitic, even though they're both, uh, you know, uh, the founders, Ben and Jerry's, both are Jewish, they were labeled as anti semite and, and self-hating and whatever. And, you know, they've sold the company. Uh, They remain on the board in in some capacity. So they end uh, one paragraph. They say, while we no longer have an operational control of the company we founded in 1978. We're proud of its action and believe it is on the right side of history. And I think that is very important because you and I talk about all the time about all these people and countries who are on the wrong side of history. All these senators Absolutely. and all these surrogates of Israel, all these people who whitewash wash its crimes, they are on the wrong side of history. I applaud them because they want to be on the Absolutely. right side of history.
0: Absolutely, Jamal. Well said. And I, I will say, you know, it wasn't a perfect opinion piece, but I, what I will say is that it took a lot of guts, it took a lot of uh commitment on the part of Ben and Jerry. You know, they have been for. 40-plus years, maybe even longer, one of the biggest, you know, progressive capitalists, if you can, you know, because, you know, they started I have to a say
1: that I have to say that there's something bad now after they've done this. I've, I've increased my consumption of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, which is really <laughs> well, bad. I should well, not be okay, doing Jamal, this. Well, that's okay,
0: Jamal. You're making up for all the, you know, moronic <laughs> Israeli politicians who are posting pictures of them throwing out... Ben and Jerry's uh, ice cream. So, you know, you're just Sorry. making up
1: for their really <laughs> I don't want I don't want to I want to support them. I don't no, want No, but
0: listen, because... you know, the statement for them they strong. were they were tried to speak to a, a middle ground, not really a progressive statement, but a, a very well thought out nuanced, you know, middle of the road kind of exploration and analysis of the reasoning behind boycotting Israel and why it's important. So I think historically, Jamal, this is a big moment in the BDS movement. And they do say, by the way, and you know this, they don't support in general the BDS movement, which which I thought was unfortunate, but yet they're engaged in a boycott. So, you know, it's interesting the way they
1: framed it. And on this topic, Jess, uh, while Israel's Prime Minister Neftali Bennett uh, vowed to act aggressively against the decision by Ben and Jerry's to stop selling its ice cream in in the occupied Palestinian uh, land, Sub-92 progressive Israelis uh, thanked uh, Ben and Jerry's yeah. uh, on Tuesday in a full-page published ad in the Haaretz uh Newspaper. It's a big under deal. Under the banner, under that's another kind of like we're seeing all these editorials now, it's an ad, and this one had under the banner, thank you, Ben and Jerry. The ad stated, Dear Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, I'm just going to read a little bit. We're writing to let you know that in Israel there are also other opinions. Thank you for your commitment to Palestinian human rights. So wow. That's a, so more, uh, more, uh, I think more than 30 of the signatories uh, included well-known academics, just notably 21 professors from the Hebrew University and from 11 other universities uh, from Tel Aviv, academics from Haifa University, Bar-Ilan University, the, the Wiseman Institute of Science, and Bezalel Academy uh, also added their signatories. So a lot of prestigious names who also want to be on the right side of history. So so it's kind of, you know, like, do you see the kind of the pyramid crumbling, Jess? Yeah, Jabal,
0: I think that's exactly what I was going to say. Maybe the pyramid is not crumbling as fast as uh, we would hope and like. But I think in this last year, we're seeing movement in the BDS movement and movement confronting the apartheid regime of Israel in a way that we haven't seen, you know, ever. And so slowly but surely, one chip at a time, one statement at a time, one commitment at a time, even one person being on the right side of history at a time is making a difference. And I always go back to the same thing. You can measure how powerful the, these progressive acts are by the strength of the Huzbada reaction. When you have the president of the apartheid regime, the you know prime minister and all of these idiotic uh, members of the Knesset who are throwing out Ben and Jerry ice cream on Twitter and labeling it terrorist ice cream. It's its a statement of their desperation more than anything else. And I do believe that they're more desperate now than they've ever been in, in, in a very, very long time, Jamal. So You know, this is time to really uh, celebrate these small wins. You know, it's really a big deal. But listen, we don't have a lot of time yet. And I've been really wanting to ask you this question. Completely off the radar in terms of the mainstream media, you spent a lot of time in Tunisia during the, you know, this is the birth of the uh, Arab Spring, uh, and arguably one of the few places in the Arab world where the, positive outcome of the arab spring took over and there were democratic reforms in the tunisian parliament and government but some things happened in the last couple of weeks Jamal are we in for
1: another tunisian revolution i don't i don't think so but of course a lot of things are happening and uh, you're right ten years uh, after the revolution that trig- triggered what now we the So called Arab Spring, uh, Tunisia, long regarded as one of the few democratic transition success stories. Because everything else, in my opinion, has failed, uh, be it uh, in Syria, uh, Libya, and, and, and so forth, right? So, Egypt. Yeah, I look, Tunisia has a special place in my heart. I spent a lot of time right. in Tunisia and I arrived in Tunisia right at the <laughs> beginning of the revolution, right in January. Right after the death uh, of Bouazizi, uh, which kind of triggered everything that went on. I've witnessed the revolution. I've witnessed them, uh, demonstrations against the first prime minister, Ghanoushi. I've witnessed the elections there that brought a nahda party in, in, into power. So now what's going on? Uh, there is a crisis. The crisis is because the uh, current president, uh, Qais Saeed, which, by the way, I've met, <laughs> I mean, he's actually a bright guy. He's a, a judge and a lawyer. Right. Uh, suspended uh, the parliament and, and and lifted the immunity of uh, politicians uh, for 30 days. And he was citing a provision in Tunisia's uh, 2014 post-revolution constitution. And that, of course, the folks at Ad Nahda party... Uh, who are described as some t- like some people like to compare them to the Islamic Brotherhood, but yeah, they but are not. Actually, they're more like a moderate Islamist party. Right. So now they're accusing him of saying that uh, Qay Saeed is staging another coup. That's what the term you use. They're using that, you know. And, and this is, of course, uh, uh, you know, Saeed, by the way, had a landslide uh, uh, election. He came into power in 2019. And as I said, again, you know the funny thing? I met Saeed. You know, here's the funny thing. Uh, there was a conference about media law and other things. Right. And in, uh, in Hungary, in Budapest in Hungary. And this he, is the crazy thing. And he was there. He was one of the invitees. You know, so he is a well-known law professor, and he's considered a social conservative. He campaigned as an outsider because at the time he was like, and, you know, and and he fought against the Tunisia's parliament, uh, you know, with another party. And, and, and now... He, you know, if you take a first glance at what's going on, you'll say to yourself, "What you've asked the question." You know, how similar is this to the toppling of uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in two thousand thirteen, with the getting rid of Morsi? But you know, remember. But that's my question and, to you, Jamal. Does this smell a little bit like uh,
0: what happened to this uh, to the Muslim Brotherhood and Morsi in Egypt? Is this a uh, 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 a mini version of this? Is this petite? Uh,
1: you know, I, I don't know. I mean, this is just, it seemed, to, I don't th- I, I it don't came think out so. of the blue. It, I don't think so. It's yes and no. I mean, if you take a first glance at it, you say, yeah, that's what reminds you of. And again, I was there when Morsi came into power and was elected in Egypt. I covered that both from Cairo and from uh, Aswan and then we know what after a year they just got rid of him, and we know what happened. We've talked about that to Morsi. The, the poor guy ended up, uh, you know, dead, dying in, in prison. In in, in, in prison. Uh, I think there's a difference. The difference is that Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who's the current president of Egypt, at the time when Morsi was president of Egypt, he was the defense minister. In fact. That was kind of, in, in retrospect, Morsi's mistake. I mean, if you asked Morsi to appoint him as defense minister. He appointed him as his defense minister because he thought Abdel Fattah Sisi was religious enough and he will kind of want clash with him on the religious ideas. And and so what, what happened in Egypt, you know, uh, Sisi had all the support, all the support of the army. That's right. When basically he launched his coup, you know, I mean, that's what happened. He had the support. I mean, ninety-nine point nine percent of the army supported him. Now, Saeed is a civilian, right? You know, Morsi is just part and parcel of this whole military establishment of Egypt. I mean, I mean, you know how Egypt. In fact, uh, Morsi is uh, was again the first civilian president because every single one sisi is not who went went ahead with the coup saeed in 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 tunisia he's a civilian he's a he's a a lawyer Uh, he does not have that connection with the military he does not have the connection with the security services right uh, uh he's going after a well organized and also nahda they are far more organized and and uh, they have more supporters in tunisia versus the uh, muslim brotherhood in in egypt
0: so, so i don't know if it's going to be but, the same
1: but, i don't think it's going to be
0: to it i know we off. don't have a lot of time Jabal. maybe we'll cover it again next week but but my question to you is what what's up with the timing Like, why is this happening now? Is is the uh, Nahda party getting stronger? Is he feeling more vulnerable? Why is this happening now?
1: Well, I mean, uh, the issues with the Nahda party has been ongoing for many months. Okay. Some people support Nahda. And, you know, there is a schism in in Tunisia. Right. And others want to go to the... Old times when you had the, um, you know, the progressives. I mean, I mean, anytime you mix religion with politics, you're going to have an issue. And some people also who who came from outside uh, Tunisian uh, diaspora who returned to uh, Tunisia also changed the, the political system there. Many of them are part of another party. So things have not been, I mean, this this didn't happen overnight. This has been building up to something like this. But I tell you one thing. I'm working on getting a, a good colleague from Tunisia once, uh, maybe hopefully for next uh, show or the show after, to talk about the intricate details. Good. We need that. What's going on Uh just what I want to say is the Tunisians are are bright people. They'll do the right thing as long as, and I say that they don't allow foreign intervention, and that's what what, what I smell in this. I this is my fear. Yeah, yeah. We've seen this. We've seen the, the the same story happen in Libya and other places. Tunisians have resisted that foreign an intervention, and that's why they were successful. They have differences like everywhere else. You know, every else, they have their differences. As long as they don't allow this foreign intervention, they are going to be okay. Well, Jabal,
0: I have a much more uh, nefarious interpretation, you know, but it's related to what you just said. I think anytime you have a stable Arab regime, there are forces on the outside who do not like to see stability among Arab countries. And so I I had the same thought too. Is this some sort of effort to mildly, if not significantly destabilize Tunisia, because it's always in the outside interests of countries or other state actors to see a less strong, less stable, less secure Tunisia. that That's the thought that I have. It's always the first thought. Well,
1: you might be on the right path just, I mean, How can we dismiss something like this? I mean, happening in the Middle East. So you could be like 99 percent correct. We're gonna keep an eye on this issue. Uh, Hopefully, we'll get someone from Tunisia to talk about it on the next show or next. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, Arab Talk Radio, to download all our shows there and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.